Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Loner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome to The Late Night, everyone. It's June, and I'm sure we all wish we were on the beach, and hopefully you're not on the beach, because I'm not, and don't be. Social (laughs) Um, distancing. Social distancing. But to live vicariously, we're going to be watching some beachy summer classics this month. First, Jack Arnold's Universal Monster Classic, Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, and Steven Spielberg's summer blockbuster, the classic 1975 movie, Jaws. So stay tuned for the tone, and we will be right back. So, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Creature from the Black Lagoon. (laughs) What Um, fun. I loved this one. I loved it so much. I loved it too. I know. It was like such a refreshing kind of movie. I always like, I often go into classic films with my teeth gritted, like ready to be exasperated a lot of times. And the movie finished and I was like, oh my God, that was great. I had a a good time. I enjoyed myself. (laughs) Yeah. No one's more surprised than me either whenever it's a classic film. Sometimes I'll just be sitting there and it'll be black and white and I'll be like, no. No, this was a mistake. I should not have watched this. <laughs> I know. I always I think I'm going to love a classic. Mm. Yeah. But truly a delight for so many reasons. I mean, great cast, great characters. I just Kay is a hero. I I love her. I want to be her. And of course, my one true love, Fishman. What a good man. Gilman. <laughs> I know. he. I know the official is Gilman, but he's Fishman in my heart. It's beautiful. Mr. Fishman. The Shape of Water Part 2, starring Axis. Yeah. Okay. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, it is. I think maybe my sympathies are skewed because I saw Shape of Water before I saw this. And so I instantly went in being like, oh, a sweet boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh yeah, Guillermo del Toro uh, is to blame, perhaps, for my sympathies. No, that's a lie. I am automatically sympathetic towards any ocean creature and any underdog. So this really just hits all of all of my soft spots. <laughs> There's a lot to love about this film and the franchise because it's connected to so much. Uh, it's one of the first 3D films. It's allowed for the show Flipper to be created. Uh, and its lasting popularity still sells props, replicas, tiki mugs, breathing masks, and sex toys. Uh, once you see a Gilman dildo on Etsy, you cannot unsee it. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> called Lover from the Black Lagoon, in case any of you are interested or morbidly curious. But unfortunately, I think it's sold out at the moment. God damn. Yeah, what can I say? Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water makes us all want love with an amphibian. In case anybody's wondering about the origins of the Gilman story, a lot of that goes to Gabriel Figuero, who told the producer William Allen about a half-man, half-fish creature that lives in the Amazon. What I believe he is referring to, or was referring to, is a succubus-like creature that resides in certain species of pink dolphin that live in the Amazon called Boto or Encantado. They're an actual species of dolphin, and that's They're why very when, cute. yeah, <laughs> and they, they look really interesting. They've got very differently shaped heads, but they are mm-hmm. adorable. Um, they're an actual species of dolphin, and that's why when googling for it, some people might hit hiccups in their research. It's not that they're half man, half fish, uh, but that during a full moon, 
according to legend, they transform into beautiful men and women and take them away to a paradise called the Underworld of Encante. Which, which sounds just amazing. Fucking amazing. Take me there. Right, me too. Like, why aren't there lounge CDs dedicated to this? We've got Hotel Custis and Buddha Bar. What the fuck, man? Exactly. Werewolf Dolphin Paradise sounds yeah. dope. Like Captain Lucas says, no one returns from alive. I wonder if it is also the portal to transsexual Transylvania. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're actually looking at the the final design for the Fishman, um, the kind of creatures that that one is based on, the thing that you eventually see is the Gilman suit is based on two specific kind of mythic figures, the sea monk and the sea bishop, which are both bizarre sea creatures. And uh, the real appearance is based on these 17th century woodcuts of them. And the bishop was the original concept for the head, but then they eventually settled on the monk. And I highly recommend looking those woodcuts up. I'll make sure to post some pictures of them Damn because right. they're adorable. They literally look like early monks and bishops, but scaly with big, like, fish scale robes. It's really cute. The sea monk generally looks way cooler than the sea bishops. They made the right choices, <laughs> I think. Uh, but there's you can go down a fun little rabbit hole looking at all of the different creatures that they think they've been over the years. There's, of course, maybe it was a shark. Maybe it was a manatee. A female eel at one point. They wanted it to look like a feminine eel at one point. Mm-hmm. All sorts of interesting different iterations. So yeah. there was so much to play with. It's, it's something where, as somebody who has slushed quite a bit over the years, I'm surprised that there haven't been more remixes of this in fiction that get mm-hmm. submitted. So, yeah. Personally, the film deeply impacted my life. Uh, from a young age, people outside my family were concerned with my love of Halloween. Uh, whether it was November, February, or July, I was always waiting for Halloween. And while I don't agree with the stance many of those people took, I can understand that some people didn't really know what to do about it. Um, now... <laughs> Like a certain Rue Morgue executive editor, I too served time in a private Catholic school, except (laughs) mine was in Manhasset, New York, and most of the faculty was either disturbed or outright against my love of Halloween. I won't name the school here, but if you live on Long Island, you probably know the name of the school, and that the old principal was so notorious that they even had a few songs written about them by my generation. Anyway... For a couple years, people were trying to take Halloween out of my life, and when I was eight years old, a woman who had become my heroine, the school's librarian, Sister Mary Rose, didn't agree with everyone else, and one quiet afternoon, she whispered to me, Hey! Hey, kid! Kid! Follow me! And the nun took me back to the back of the displays in the library and introduced me to a series of books that would forever change my life. Uh, Mary Rose referred to them as the Orange Monster Books, and that was their nickname. Uh, They were this brilliant shade of pumpkin orange, and as some had faded yellow, they felt like an embodiment of autumn in the school library. Now, if you love horror, you've probably already guessed that the Orange Monster Books were the 1977 Crestwood House Monster Series, which also included Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, where, for the record, the cover isn't Lawrence Talbot, uh, which that book was about, uh, but Henry Hall of Werewolf of London. Now, the book that I rented and re-rented most of all was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And as an 8 through 13-year-old boy, 
I came away with very different preconceptions of what this film was going to be about before I watched it. I didn't get to see it till I was 13 uh, on my 13th birthday. I was expecting a monster movie. I didn't get exactly what I'd hoped for. Um, I thought the suit that Rico Browning and Ben Chapman wore uh, was amazing, although I didn't feel as impressed with the story um, as I did with others. Uh, I will say, in terms of how I felt about that suit up until that point, uh, I hadn't been impressed with the aesthetics of almost any other monster suit until Giger's Xenomorph, and then later on, Aiko Ishioka's work on Dracula in 1992. Mm -hmm. Um, The Gill Man, however, is something that keeps being tinkered with Mm -hmm. for a remake. Uh, John Landis, John Carpenter... Ivan Reitman and Breck Eisner have each taken a shot with their own vision. Yeah, if you look up the uh, the list of people who have tried to make a sequel, that thing reads like you're walking through a graveyard. It's <laughs> huge. <laughs> it's like you can't be a director or a horror director without having tried and then <laughs> fucked up and walked away. Yeah, tried and it really is, just fucked up. It reminds me of this tale of the sword in the stone, where everybody's trying to get the sword <laughs> out of the stone, but fate ultimately seems to have someone else in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the result has been, you know, for the last 50, 60 years, that unlike Gilman's counterparts, Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, who have all been remade several times over, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen lots of uh, tribute Gilman characters like in Monster Squad or Hellboy. But aside from parodies and knockoffs, the last time we really saw Deus Branquia was in the 1950s. Um, one reason might be because every director has their own way of wanting to spin the creature instead of simply retelling the story where Mark Williams, i.e. Mankind, is the antagonist and not the poor frickin' creature. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we're so in the era of the gritty reboot that, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I worry about what could happen to our poor Gil Man. (laughs) I mean, if you read the plots for any of them, they all look abysmal. It's like, oh, what if it was a pharmaceutical accident in the Amazon? It's like, okay, sure. What makes this plot special, I think, is because he's just a happy fish chilling in his lagoon until Mark comes and fucks shit up. (laughs) Right. Like, if you make it, if you make him a freak of nature and some horrifying accidental kind of human error, it entirely changes the plot. There's just, there's so much that went wrong with how this creature was handled and developed over the years. I mean, there was Mm -hmm. even a... One novelist even tried to make it that there was a race in the Devonian era and that this particular creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, this particular Gilman, was simply a freak even amongst its own kind and was an outcast. And it's like, dude, you're telling me this thing was fucking lonely for like 48 million years? What the actual fuck kind of story is that? Yeah, and it's a bummer because like, I feel like there are so many directions you could take that in in an interesting way. I mean, the thing Mm -hmm. does start with a fossil dig where you're coming up with this buried Gilman. And I'm like, oh my god, it's still around. Like, the idea of having this prehistoric creature that's been lost is so cool. And, I mean, especially if you're looking at uh, things like the coelacanth, where, you know, they thought it was a fish that was lost forever. And surprise, here it is still living at the bottom of the ocean. The premise is there. The premise, the concept exists in nature. And people clearly love it, given the goddamn rise of the uh, the Megalodon mm-hmm. mockumentaries that mm-hmm. came out a few years ago. Let me tell you. <laughs> 
terrible time to be working in a shop that sold fossils because every fourth person that walked in was like, oh, you got the Megalodon teeth, I see. <laughs> I bet those are going to be worth a lot less real soon once they start fishing those suckers up from the ocean. I just want to clarify, <laughs> Megalodons are not alive. Right. They died out a long ass time ago. No, and you no, got to see Jason the fine Statham print catch of that one. mockumentary. Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, but it seems like the groundwork is laid for a reboot like that instead of making it some shitty gritty movie i mean and the other thing is also like in today's context if you if there was really an anthropomorphic fish man and a rich guy basically shot speared and drugged it and brought it back fucking PETA would be running down there with normal people <laughs> holding and they'd be like fucking packing Klingon war glaives for like whoever was fucking with that fish man they, they they wouldn't even be like asking they'd be going like in there with like a green beret team to kick the crap out of whoever taking the thing out of its habitat so, yeah like, absolutely I have, yeah I mean the second somebody gets some cell phone footage from, of that it right. is all over for the government secrets yeah yeah, but I mean, does the government care? They're releasing UFO footage. I mean, even, even the people in Brazil would be like, that's our national treasure. You're fucking with our <laughs> national treasure. Yeah, absolutely. Now that movie I'd like to watch. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Mark gets back to land. I'm a hero. No, not No, Mark. Quite. No, you're not. <laughs> you are tonight's entertainment, Mark. <laughs> yeah, if, for anyone who wants to bankroll, we are open to offers. Just let us know. <laughs> Well, um, in The Hollywood Reporter, uh, back in 2001, Gary Ross, uh, son of screenwriter Arthur A. Ross, who was one of the original screenwriters for The Creature from the Black Lagoon, said, The story embodies the clash between primitive men and civilized men. And I really loved Ross's statement because what it strongly implies to me is that Even back in the 1950s, we knew patriarchy was a problem. And I want to put a fine point on that here. In the context of the Black Lagoon, a primitive man, even in the 1950s, was a morally compromised individual who was willing to risk everybody's well-being and safety for the sake of success. Richard Denning's Mark Williams is someone who guilts anyone who wants to forego the wealthy guy's concept of success for the group's well-being and clearly today that message still rings true we even see that concept in another character we'll be talking about a little bit later larry vaughn (laughs) yeah our good friend (laughs) amity as you know means friendship (laughs) i actually think of andy garcia in the 2016 ghostbusters is like never compare me with the jaws mayor never you never (laughs) do it I know that is, I think, perhaps the most cutting insults. Yeah. yeah. Two things I never want to be called Jaws Mayer and Mark from, uh, from, Mark from Creature. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. It's like you're acting like a jerk. So what? You're acting like Mark. Whoa. That cuts <laughs> me deep. I know. I suddenly need to take a moment for some self-reflection. Speaking <laughs> of self-reflection, I do want to point out, um, I want to publicly apologize for ragging on the creature's theme, which 
played, you know, 130 times throughout the movie, that musical sting, because I found out it was written entirely uncredited by Universal Staff composer Herman Stein, and Herman deserves better. Herman's uncredited work was heard 130 times, and his name is nowhere in the goddamn credits. So Herman, I'm sorry to you. You know what? And it wasn't even Herman's freaking fault, because it no. was the executive's decision that they play it every time the yeah. creature shows up. Herman did his goddamn level best, and this is what happened. I bet you Herman thought it was going to be like maybe use three, four I time stops. <laughs> and, and like the execs were like, nah, man, every freaking time. Like more cowbell, more mm-hmm. freaking Herman. Just keep doing that stupid <laughs> Poor cue. Herman was sitting in that audience with his 3D glasses on going like, okay, there it is. Uh, okay. <laughs> there it is again. There it is. What? Is, is that a sixth time? Is that a... Is that and by the end of the movie he was just softly weeping from behind his 3D glasses tears cascading down. <laughs> what have I wrought? Right. <laughs> yeah, speaking of other uncredited people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, th- then we kind of asked ourselves, well, yeah, we know where the lore comes from, but who created the Gilman's look? Mm-hmm. And uh for years People thought it was Bud Westmore, who was a very famous uh, makeup artist at the time. Um, but then I read the rest and I flipped a shit. I, I actually ended up uh, delaying our notes uh, almost by two days because I was so angry. I needed to be like, calm down. I was like, what the fuck was this guy's problem? And da, 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 da. Yeah, we, I, like, I think we both like have a, a real dog. axe I need to grind like, news- here. I, I need to be like hit on the head with the newspaper to calm me down, you know? <laughs> bonk, bonk. Well, so I guess 20 years later, Forrest Ackerman, basically the godfather of horror film magazines, for those who don't know him, his nickname is Forey, revealed that there was a very talented woman named Mildred Elizabeth Fulvia de Rossi, better known and often credited as Millicent Patrick. Uh, however, mm-hmm. if you dig into the story of Paul Fitzpatrick, I'm pretty sure Mildred would rather be credited as de Rossi yeah. um, or just Mildred. Yeah, and she's she's a badass. I just want to say this woman, she's an actress, a pianist, an early animator and a concept artist. Like she pioneered some forms of animation and just read up on her because she's incredible. So we owe like Vincent Price or Boris Karloff. We owe this woman a lot. Absolutely. And it is a terrible injustice that more people don't know her name. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing was, it wasn't exactly clear what Mildred's role in the creature's creation was. Uh, however, another heroine in our field, author Mallory O'Meara, revealed to the world in 2019 in a book called The Lady from the Black Lagoon that the Gilman was, in fact, Millicent's design. And that yeah, she was entirely, fired. Head to toe. It was entirely hers. And that she was fired because Bud Westmore simply didn't want to share the stage with a woman. Let that sink in. It's vile and it's not just her like i do she is by far the brains of this operation but so she remained uncredited and also chris mueller jr sculpted the head for yep. the gill man and jack kevin crafted the bodysuit and jack is also better known for working on the wizard of oz and crafting prosthetics for amputees in world war ii so yep. props to jack so all three of these people were entirely robbed of movie credits because bud westmore had an ego the size of california mm. and needed all of the credit for himself which is an unsurprising but real asshole move disgusting just disgusting you know um 
And afterwards, in a world where women basically had no recourse at the time, Millicent went back to doing small parts and never worked in makeup again. So. Yeah, which is a shame because she was an incredible talent. Yeah, I mean, that design, it's its Millicent's design. I mean, it's that has gone down in history as one of the most iconic monster designs yeah, definitely. ever. Ever. I mean, every time, every, every, for better or worse, everything that Creature from the Black Lagoon is associated with, that's all mm-hmm. her. Yeah. 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 It's her vision. And also, I want to just mention quickly, if you're a Disney fan, Mildred also designed Chernabog mm-hmm. uh, when you see the Night on Bold Mountain scene in Fantasia. And um, I'm pretty sure that if you've ever played Magic the Gathering in the 90s, you'll notice that there's a resemblance between Chernabog and Lord of the Pit. So there is definitely uh, something there. you know. So Mildred is in your life a lot more than you'd think. But while we're giving shout outs... Uh, big shout out to Rico Browning and Julie Adams. Hell for, yeah. For Rico suggesting Julie throw a cigarette in the water and Julie learning to smoke just for that scene. <laughs> what a lady. <laughs> right? Just to, Captain Planet would be proud. Um, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, hey, let's let's capture how shitty a person looks when they're littering. It's like, yeah, let's do that. Um, I had the interview. I had the honor of interviewing Rico back in 2014 and i won't talk about the whole interview uh, because i like to support the magazine i'm from rumor horror and culture and entertainment uh but i'd always wanted to interview rico because to me he is the real gilman uh the gentleman in the suits on land always changed but rico was ever uh the gilman who wore the suit and swam underwater and the creature from the black lagoon revenge of the creature and the creature walks among us um, you can pick up Heroes of Horror, which is one of my favorite room work bookazines, not just because I'm in it, but because it's filled with interviews. Uh, but I will retell Rico's funniest story here. I once asked him what the funniest thing that ever happened to him while filming was. And um, the way that the mask was designed uh, was it was like he said it was like looking out of two apartment keyholes. Right, so each eye was like looking out of an apartment keyhole, and when they were filming at Wakula Springs State Park, he was the one who went into the alligator-infested waters and swam around. Uh, just, just bravery across the across the board for so much. And um, the only thing was, everybody else got a robe when they were done shooting, and they were shooting in the middle of winter. And even uh, in Florida, uh, it was quite cold in winter when you yeah, got out that's of the nippy. water. Yeah, so everybody else got out, and they got a robe. Uh, but poor Rico, he got out, and uh, not like Chapman, his suit was fucking freezing. I'm pretty sure they would have liked him to set to set him on fire at that point. And he was sitting there, shivering in his chair with his mask off. The way Rico said it was, every once in a while, somebody would feel sorry for me, and then they gave me a nip of brandy. And then after nine or ten felt sorry for me, you had a drunk creature. So the way that that fiasco ended up ending was he was uh, going down the beach one day, uh, completely hammered with his with his mask on and ended up scaring a young girl and then uh, nobody was allowed to give poor Rico any brandy anymore. Uh, <laughs> Just and, this poor little kid watching <laughs> oh, the horror icon that they didn't know existed rise out of the water utterly sloshed. <laughs> right. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure herman stein's musical sting played in her head <laughs> <laughs> no that was his realization that he realized he'd just been caught being hammered by a seven-year-old girl that was like 
But you know, Rico went oh. on to Rico went on to write and direct Flipper, and uh, yeah, he's he's just amazing. He's still around. With God bless him, he's still with us. The absolute amount of talent it takes to hold your breath for four minutes at a time while doing underwater aerobics is enough to like make him go down in the record books forever. So, right. Lots of love to Riku. Now the question was: Was he drunk while he was doing that at all? <laughs> Can you do that with brandy? I don't know. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> and at the end of the interview, I got my buddy April Snelling's autograph, which I hope is still hanging on her living room wall. It better be April. And uh, I also highly recommend checking out April's interview with Julie Adams and her article, Horror from the Depths, which you can find in Rumor 127. Yeah. One more shout out, since we're doing shout outs, I also want to mention Jenny Clack from the University of Cambridge, because in 1998, Jenny Clack discovered a fossilized swamp amphibian from the Carboniferous period in Scotland. And this absolute hero, bless you, Jenny Clack, saw this thing and was like, you know what I'm going to name it? I'm going to name it Eucrita melanolimnites, which literally means true creature of the Black Lagoon. So she took her her major archaeological find and was like, you know what I love? Creature from the Black Lagoon. And it's a good name. You should look it up. I'll also post a picture of this one on our Instagram. It's a cutie and it looks like a fat little salamander. And I'm really happy that Creature from the Black Lagoon gets its uh, archaeological kind of uh, props like it was intended to i think from the very beginning and hopefully she did her excavation better than the uh the archaeologist did in the movie <laughs> you know what else i'll donate while we're doing all that i have mm-hmm. i went as the creature from the black lagoon in 2012 <gasps> um in my first year working for Rumorg, and so i will definitely donate that as well i have oh an God, early picture know of this. Me. yeah i was a complete i was totally obsessed with creature from the black lagoon from a young age so one year, I had my, my mother-in-law help me make a sort of luchador mask. We took a luchador yes. mask and we altered it. And yes. um, I actually did my own design for an iron-on t-shirt. Uh, Universal, if you're here, if you're listening, anybody at Universal, <laughs> if there's just one, please don't sue me. You know, I'm not Ben Scrivens. I stopped at one. That was it. Please leave me alone. Um, and um, yeah. So, yeah, how uh, the fuck have we been talking about this movie for a month and you didn't tell me this I yet? I forgot. I just forgot. There's so much there's so much crazy horror crap I've done. <laughs> I, I'm at that point of my life where I'm getting to 40. I'm kind of losing count. Yeah, so. I am holding you to getting that photo because I, I, I want will. it. So for anybody um, who's interested in doing some reading or any authors who are more interested in uh, some further reading... Uh, I would like to say Creature from the Black Lagoon was novelized in 1954 by John Russell Fairn under the pseudonym Vargo Staten, and later Walter Harris, uh, using the pseudonym Carl Dreadstone, novelized the creature uh, again in 1977. I've read and that both. one is a, a bonkers alteration. Definitely yeah. worth a read of the summary. Both are good. Both are good. Mm-hmm. And um, and I also think. Um, for people who are modern horror fans, I also think that uh, we all owe it to to De Rossi to read Mallory O'Meara's The Lady from the Black Lagoon. I think it's a very relevant text for every modern horror fan and to remember that even though we try and support you know, our fellow woman, that there's still more to do and that we should always remain vigilant on that front. Yeah, absolutely. And as we kind of transition from that and start talking about the second movie of the month, the thing that 
I think really tied together Creature of the Black Lagoon and Jaws for me is this idea of almost a sympathetic monster. Clearly Creature from the Black Lagoon is a much more sympathetic monster, I think, in, in the general view than Jaws, but I love them both. But there's a, a quote from Julie Adams, who played Kay, and she said the movie was lovely to work on and everyone was extremely nice, and I'm really glad that she seems to be just as nice as her character, because she said... There always is that feeling of compassion for the monster. I think maybe it touches something in ourselves, maybe the darker parts of ourselves, that long to be loved and think they really can't ever be loved. It strikes a chord within us. Which is sweet. <laughs> You're making faces. I am, because I'm thinking about The Thing. I'm thinking about John Carpenter's The Thing, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Then I think okay. about, like, man is the warmest place to hide, and I'm, I don't know. Okay, so it's not a universally applicable rule. I think that might be it. Yeah, I think like 99.999% of the time it's, <laughs> you should love it. And then it's like the other point zero zero one. it's fucking kill it with fire. Get the, yes. Mac wants the what? Motor wants the flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, that was last month. No flamethrowers this month. <laughs> never but, fun. yes, so transitioning over to talking about Jaws a little bit. This is another one where Jaws ignited just a, a reign of terror. My poor mother saw this movie in theaters in its original release when she was a child, and for months after that, she was terrified to use a toilet or her bathtub because a shark could come out of it. Um, Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, so they really did. They really did uh, get some terrifying imagery from our good friend Bruce the Shark. Uh, but... I think, I mean, again, clearly in our watch through, we had some sympathy for the shark. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about the impact of Jaws, both the positive and the negative. So I'm going to skim through the negative a little bit because A, it's not a lot of fun to talk about. B, I think it's been covered a lot. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in any of the things I'm talking about, there are a ton of really, really great resources that you can find. Or just email um, us. Yes. <laughs> So one of the things that people talk about a lot with Jaws is the negative impact of it on sharks themselves. Yeah. Um, it brought back a ton of stigma and fear of sharks. So first, mm -hmm. the movie does really play on some real fears from shark attacks. It was based on a event called the 12 Days of Terror back in 1916 when there was a series of deadly shark attacks on the New Jersey shore. Um, and it's actually a really interesting event to research. There were four deaths and five people wounded by what's generally assumed to be a great white shark, although there's, you know, opinions back and forth. Um, and it's especially relevant to Jaws because, again, if you uh, sat through our watch along, I believe I said at some point something along the lines of why the hell would a shark be in the pond when it has the whole ocean? But in the 12 Days of Terror, several of the attacks happened inland in Tidal Creeks, which was also really unprecedented at the time, but a really cool tie-in to Jaws. So it's based on these real fears, but then exacerbated way past that. As most people I think know, the actual chance of being attacked by a shark, and especially fatally attacked by a shark, is extremely low. But there was what one might call a disproportionate response, a uh, fearful response, that is, to Jaws after the film's release. 
Yeah, like, you know how there were those hillbillies running around throwing dynamite into the water? There was actually, like, a real-world reflection of that. that shit happened for real. So there were, I do want to say, a lot of factors that contributed to an increase in shark hunting in the years following Jaws, but Jaws was definitely one of those factors. So shark fishing became super popular in fishing competitions. It was this really kind of classic image that came from Jaws and then was reinforced to see sharks hauled out of the water hanging up on the piers and seaside towns as a trophy from entirely unnecessary fishing. Um, and it also was a really profitable fishing endeavor for getting shark fins, um, f- which was a really easy fishing kind of job, really stable export to Asian markets, and really profitable as a fisherman. Um, But So a lot of these factors led to a major decline in shark populations worldwide, leaving a lot of species of shark threatened, some endangered. Um, But what a lot of people I think don't know about is the kind of other side of the coin and the shark conservationists that came out of Jaws. And that's, that's my favorite thing about the movie, so I want to talk about some of them. First, I want to mention Ron and Valerie Taylor. So they are in the credits for Jaws. You'll see a credit for Ron and Valerie, who um, were the shark photographers and shark videographers for the movie. They are a couple of badasses. So in real life, they were a married couple, two Australian divers who started out as champion spear fishers in their younger lives, but then, yeah, but had a turnaround and became passionate ocean conservation advocates. So the couple has worked on dozens of film projects for TV, movies, and documentaries, recorded shark footage all over the world. Really tons of movies and documentaries you've seen have their work in it. They were the pioneers of filming sharks. And the two of them were kind of an obvious choice to work on Jaws, but they were extremely concerned about the impact of the movie, and in the years immediately following Jaws, they were extremely active in the media circuit, um, advocating for the importance of protecting sharks and what the predators are really like. So even, you know, in the press tour for Jaws, they were out there being like, hey, it's a great movie, but also here are the real facts you should know. Um, They were also pioneers in a lot of other capacities. They were some of the first divers to dive cage-free with sharks. And Valerie was the first test subject to see if male diving suits, like literal chain mail suits for diving, can protect from shark bites. They can, as we know now. And there are dope pictures of Valerie Taylor with her arm inside a shark mouth, smiling for the camera. Just absolutely (laughs) incredible. She is so cool. The two of them are so cool. Definitely worth doing further research on them if you're interested. And some of the documentaries they've worked on, such as Blue Water, White Death, are available for free on YouTube. So have at it and really, you know, get into get into their media because they deserve it and enjoy some more shark movies. We'll post that in the links to the episode below. Yeah. And then the real hero, I think, of Jaws, the author, Peter Benchley. Um, so Peter Benchley wrote the original book that Jaws was based on and wrote the early drafts of the screenplay as well, several drafts of it. Um, But he was always fascinated by sharks in the ocean, and he was an avid diver both before and after the book and movie's release. His widow, Wendy Benchley, emphasizes that he has always had a really sympathetic view towards ocean creatures, but those feelings developed a lot further, especially in the years following the release of the movie Jaws. Yeah. So... A lot of Benchley's own kind of personal narrative with sharks revolves around 
one particular dive he went on uh, in a nature reserve off the coast of Costa Rica back in the early 1980s. So now if you don't want to hear some real bummer shit about animal abuse, maybe skip ahead a minute. (laughs) But um, basically, he was diving down in this gorgeous aquatic ocean paradise in a nature reserve when he emerged into this horrifying vista of dozens of dead fin sharks littering the seafloor. Now, the common practice for finning sharks is really, really awful. Sharks are hauled onto boats, and as they are suffocating in the air, their fins are hacked off with knives before the sharks are thrown back into the water, unable to swim. So not only can they not propel themselves, which would be a terrible death in its own right, but sharks breathe by constantly staying in motion to ensure that water is flowing over their gills, meaning that a shark who can't move is doomed to suffocate. So Peter Benchley encounters this absolute hellscape of sharks who should be safe in their own ocean home, who have been mutilated and left to simultaneously bleed out and suffocate, and uh, that changed some shit for Peter Benchley. Yeah. So Peter had this huge turnaround where he'd already, you know, thought sharks were cool. Basically, I think he he had a generally positive opinion. But between the kind of negative pushback towards sharks from Jaws and this experience, he changed everything. He really devoted the rest of his life to shark conservation up until his death in 2006. Um, He continued to dive with sharks for many years. He personally invested money and much of the profits of Jaws itself into shark conservation and ocean health. And in 2002, he released the nonfiction book Shark Trouble about his own encounters with sharks and about conservation. And his final book that was released in 2005 is called Shark Life and is meant to educate kids about the ocean. Um, And he offered a quote to the Daily Express saying, quote, I hope that Jaws will have brought sharks into the public interest at a time when we desperately need to reevaluate our care for the environment, end quote. And I think that in many ways that is true. So clearly we have seen negative pushback from Jaws, but there are a lot of positives. So now we're in this era of dozens of killer shark movies, including such classics as Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus, Sharktopus, and of course, Sharknado, which also spawned my grandma's favorite slot machine game at the casino. So thank you, Sharknado, for providing my grandma and endless entertainment. Um, we literally live in the Twilight Zone, I swear oh, yeah. to God. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that was also a bizarre conversation with my grandma on the phone where I said something about Sharknado and she was like, oh yeah, that's my favorite slot machine game. And I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck? That's a slot machine? I can guarantee you she has not watched Sharknado, but she does love the game. I can already see it. It's like, what are we going to do in Mexico? Let's go find the Sharknado slot machine. That's a quest. Forget finding White Castle. I want to get to the Sharknado slot Mm -hmm. machine. Right. But then the Discovery Channel has also created Shark Week, which is an annual television event to celebrate sharks, both the kind of sensationalized action movie version of them, but also more documentary-style content about their real-life counterparts. And Shark Week has become a huge educational tool to disseminate information about sharks and shark conservation, and its increasing popularity over the years has meant increased publicity for conservationists who are just trying to get the message out. And so at the end of the day, I think that even I think that even Jaws itself did some good stuff. I think it was pretty clear in our watch along that 
my sympathy lay with the shark. <laughs> and uh, Jaws did get a lot of people interested in sharks and in the ocean, even if it did, you know, ter- terrify my mom for years. <laughs> for me, it was kind of a, a close call between Brody and the shark. I've always, I've always had very... <laughs> Brody, for me, has always been kind of like Dwayne Jones's Ben from Night mm-hmm. of the Living Dead. Like, there's, there's a group of men and women who I always see as the ultimate heroes of horror, right? So, like, um, and oddly enough, even though I love Bruce Campbell as a person, Bruce Campbell's um, Ash was not my, my all-time favorite because I, know, I didn't always see him as the ultimate horror hero. I actually just saw him as kind of a dick with a chainsaw for an arm. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, Ben uh, from Land of the Living Dead, who was played by Dwayne Jones, you know, reminded me a lot of my own father. Um, who was just this keep shit together kind of person. Mm-hmm. And then Brody was his father figure. You know, I Absolutely. love the fact, you know, and I loved him in the novel and I loved him, um, you know, I loved him in the film as well. I really loved yeah. Roy Scheider's depiction of him. I've always thought that Roy Scheider was a very talented actor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't really think about it before, but now that you're talking about it, I do really think in a lot of ways he is like my perfect horror protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> Where, <laughs> I mean, he, you, I'm always the person who's screaming at the, at the screen, like, why the hell are you walking straight into danger? Yeah. And Brody is the same person who's like, why, why are we on the away. boat? Why right. are we He's on the just boat? Like Why don't we just tow it just into like shore? Let's... <laughs> right. Same yeah. idea, which is a, and that's really, it was more pragmatic thing. Like, cause you know, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Jonathan Harker is just a dick and I'm not even, <laughs> you know, he's uh-huh. just a dick. And, and Jonathan Harker is just like, you know, he's a Victorian man and it's not that there's anything quote unquote wrong with him per se, but we've outgrown him. And so when we looked for, you know, men and women in the horror world to kind of influence, you know, or role model after, I always felt that it was Ben and and, and Richard Brody. Because yeah. these two people were always, you know, they're trying to keep things together. They don't want to be, they don't want any part of horror whatsoever. You know, if they were like, there's a camera on, they would both knock the cameraman out and then proceed to get to safety. So, and I also feel that way about Ellen Ripley. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rose McGowan's Cherry Darling, uh, Zoe Bell's uh, Zoe the Cat, right? I loved I loved all those characters. Those were really, you know, my imaginary hardcore team of heroes. Oh, and of course, Tracy Toms is Kim from Death Proof as well. I love Tracy Toms as Kim. Mm-hmm. There's actually a t-shirt that says, oh, you know, I can't let you go without tapping that ass. And I was always like, <laughs> I need that t-shirt. I was like, I need that. I need uh, that. Well, as now a I know what to get you for Christmas. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, as far as you know, as far as between the book and the film, I would like to note because we did talk about it. Brief, you know, we talked mm-hmm. about it kind of at length in the watch along. Watch along. But in watch alongs, I kind of have to stop and interrupt my thoughts so that we can we can get through scene by scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there was definitely a huge difference between the book and the movie. Um, and I'll just, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, then just skip ahead a few minutes. But um, basically there is, um, Benchley's Jaws reads more like a romance novel than it does as a horror novel. And I've um, not only had this conversation with horror writers, but with several, several grandmas in office jobs at the coffee machine. We'd all be sitting there and they'd all be like, oh, I've watched Jaws before. And, and I'd kind of be like, and there it is. I don't even have to, I don't even have to say it's a horror novel. It's just like, yeah, that affair that Mrs. Brody has with Hooper is really crazy. And then you're like, 
And then you're like, Mrs. Brody had sex with Hooper and still Ugh. guilted Mr. Brody? Oh, I gotta read this. I'm just sitting there reading it, and I'm like, oh, man. Um, also, I just want to, you know, I'm a Long Islander. I come from Long Island. Um, uh, we're not really as pretentious as we used to be, but that was kind of the way that we used to behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who are curious, I did take the time to do a little bit of research. Uh, Long Island, um, Amity is essentially supposed to be near uh, Long Beach. And it's not an island, technically. It's just another town that's on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on, But it's it's not on the North Shore. It's on the other side. Um, it's probably somewhere between, you know, theoretically speaking, somewhere between Long Beach and Fire Island. Um, uh, there was, you know, but there's, but there are a lot of similarities like Larry Vaughn, who's the mayor. Um, he is also, uh, still, he still has the same stance and, and, um, I will say that his reasons for doing what he does are a little bit more intricate and then what they talk about in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. In the book, he's he's basically at the mafia's behest, and if he closed the beaches down, really? yeah, he owes the he owes the mafia a lot of money, and if he doesn't pay on time, he's going to be in a lot of shit. Wow, so I never thought I would see why. him be a more sympathetic character, but suddenly, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, there's a there's a whole lot to it. There's actually a member of the mafia comes to Brody in the second book. It's the same member who's got the mayor under his thumb in the first book, a very likable uh, mafia figure comes up to Brody and is basically like, I'd like you on my payroll. And he's like, you know, I don't do that. And he's like, well, that's exactly why I want you because everybody knows you don't steal. And and I, and I that was um, a novelization by Hank Searles. The name of the novel is Jaws 2. Uh, I first discovered it. When I was in Bar Harbor at the Jessup Library, which doesn't get nearly as much support as I'd like it to get, it has a book sale every summer uh, around July or August. And uh, in case you guys ever want to meet me, don't bother me there because I don't even talk to my wife while I'm at that sale. I basically look like Scrooge McDuck, you know, sort of like a, it's kind of like a mutant mole sort of jumping in between book stacks into and out of the book stacks. You won't even understand how the fuck I'm moving. I'm just some sort of weird fucking floating, jumping, crawling, digging thing as I find all the literature that I'm missing out on when I live here in Germany. I can envision it clearly. The book sale is iconic. It's also just a gorgeous space. And they were kind enough to let a bunch of my friends film a movie in there. So major props to them. We love them. They're great people. I love them. Um... Yeah, but that's where I have dis- I've discovered several editions of Jaws 2 at the Jessup Library. <laughs> I bought like three of them and brought them home as friends. Because to me, Jaws 2 is the ultimate monster novel. And I, anybody who disagrees with me, I will fight you. Okay? Um, so Amazing. Yeah, talking about kind of the, the writing of it, the script itself for the movie went through a hell of a lot of rewrites. It's something uh-huh. where, I mean, yeah, Benchley wrote a couple of versions. Spielberg was like, I like the end, but the beginning needs some work. So a <laughs> bunch of people touched it. But Let's my have favorite... a drunk girl can get killed. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, but it kind of ended up in the hands of Carl Gottlieb. So he's a comedian, an actor, and a writer, yep. and he was working on the sitcom version of The Odd Couple at the time. But Spielberg asked Carl Gottlieb to come in. Was like, he was like, hey, can you do some rewrites of the script and make it funnier? And also, do you want a part in the movie? So Gottlieb chose to be Meadows, the editor of the local paper. 
And he ended up contributing way more to the script writing process yep. than the original brief, which was, quote, a one week dialogue polish. Um, <laughs> he instead became the primary screenwriter and he wrote in a way that just sounds so delightful to me. And it's it makes this movie sound like so much fun to work on. So he would finish each scene, usually the night before they shot it. And Gottlieb would have dinner with Spielberg and the cast and crew to talk about the upcoming scene. And the whole group would improvise their own add-ins, which includes the iconic you're going to need a bigger boat line from Roy, Schne from Roy Scheider. And this just sounds like as an actor, like the dream working process, <laughs> like to have this kind yeah. of communal environment where everybody can hang out, shoot the shit and have a part in making the movie. Like I, I just I always like to draw attention to any time a movie actually sounds like it would have been great to work on. And that bit of the story just warms my cold, dead little heart, you know. But yeah, as far as adding things to the to the script, I have this conversation all the time with people where people are like, um, we're talking about reality and the importance of reality when we're writing things. And uh, I've always, I always take away this one moment from Jaws where I think it was Benchley. I don't remember exactly who it might have been Gottlieb too, but one of the writers was mm -hmm. was protesting against Steven Spielberg when he was shooting the final scene where yep. Bruce basically has the tank in his mouth. He's swimming at full speed at Brody and Brody's going to pull the trigger and blow up the shark's head. Yeah, and I would also like, like to say they tested that on Mythbusters and that's some bullshit. It is bullshit. <laughs> um, but the funny thing is that there's just this moment where the you know the writers on set yelling at Spielberg and he's going nobody's ever you know Steven nobody's ever going to believe that that's not going to work <laughs> and Steven at this point just flip, he's like look shut up shut up okay <laughs> I've been selling them reality for the last two hours at this point they will believe whatever the fuck I tell them to believe and let me have some fun <laughs> right and there's actually this moment where I thought as a writer I thought that was brilliant that was really a brilliant and ballsy move. It's like, yeah, you know what? Why not? If you've been trying to sell them reality for the last two hours and, and you've gotten everybody to believe this, then yeah, m m give it a shot. And um, obviously everybody else was really happy because every time, you know, the shark's head exploded in theaters, everyone was like, yeah, you can even like yeah. see it, right? And like live reactions. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I get it from the filmmaking perspective. If if after all of that, it was just like one more harpoon that sank the shark, that would not feel like a satisfying ending. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing that I think was missing, because people always talk about remaking this film. In fact, mm -hmm. I think it was last year that it was uh, people started to talk mm -hmm. about the remake. And I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, why? And yeah. um, Some things just don't need a remake. So many things well, don't no, need a remake. I think about it a lot, sort of like covering a song. There's certain mm -hmm. songs that you can't, that if you're going to try covering them, you better know what the fuck you're doing. You better have practiced. Otherwise, when you fuck up, you're going to either lose a lot of money or you're going to lose a lot of good press. Yeah. Um, good example would be the Beatles Imagine and Gal Gadot trying to cover it, right? That would be one good example. Um, or like anybody trying to cover the song Stairway to Heaven, right? It's one of those things where you better know what you're doing or you should just sit down. It's better that you sit down and you don't do anything at all. So with Jaws, kind of like the 2010 remake of Nightmare on Elm Street, there are times where it would be better if you didn't do something rather than if you did, I think. But I will mm -hmm. say this, that if, if anybody who does films is out there and they're listening, the one character that I think was missing from both Jaws 2 and Jaws 1 
was the character of Minnie Eldritch, the postmistress of Amity. Mm. And she's only in Jaws 1 for maybe a few minutes. And she's in Jaws 2 as well for a few minutes as well. Brody consults her a second time. Um, you know, more spoilers. Um, many, I mean, this whole thing has been spoiler filled, but, um, yeah, yeah. Well, we tell you after the, after the tone, yeah. it's filled with spoilers. So, you know, here we are in Spoilerville. Um, but, you know, Brody at one point comes in in the novel and says, yeah, we're going to try and catch the shark and post, you know, Minnie Eldridge says, you're not going to catch that shark. It's Leviathan sent from God and it's going to do what it's got to do until it's gone. And um, then afterwards, you know, after, you know, Brody barely survives and goes back uh, and has to deal with the shark a second time, uh, he consults Minnie because Minnie, you know, seems to know what the hell she's talking about. Imagine that. Yeah. Also, and I love that about Benchley. It's like, hey, you know what? We're going to make a woman the wise woman. She's going to be like, she's going to be like the hermit. And of course, I, I you gotta the, have the old wise crone. I, yeah, I, no, I love the character. I really do. I thought that that was the coolest character. Like, I could see someone like Judy Dench, Kate Blanchett, someone like that playing the part, you know? And um, mm-hmm. there's there's a number of women who I could see really playing it and doing it well, uh, or Glenn Close. I think that if anybody's gonna try remaking Jaws, mm-hmm. that they might as well try and go the, it may not be a creature of this world or it may only look yeah. like a creature that is earthly i think that may be one approach you know I yeah mean, the, that's the, true you know or the other approach is the grindhouse approach you know where there's a were shark and there's a bounty hunter that kills yeah I, you know i think we've done that i think we've done that but hey i'm always happy to see it done again <laughs> well yeah uh, speaking of missed opportunities there are there are a couple a couple things Things that uh, I, I think could be missed opportunities in the production of the first one. So the first thing, the fact that, oh, I love. When Benchley was writing the original Jaws book, he mm-hmm. had originally titled it Silence in the Water, which I'm glad he didn't. He <laughs> yeah, realized that didn't get traction. Um, but because he wasn't happy with it, <laughs> he asked his dad, Nathaniel Benchley, who's a children's book author, for title suggestions. Nathaniel, a hero of dad, offered a list of 200 suggestions, Jesus. which included... The Jaws of Leviathan, which was ultimately shortened to get the final title in particular because they were like, this is great, but a Leviathan is a mammal, so I guess we'll just do Jaws. Um, That, hey, if that's their reasoning, I'm not going to question it. Um, (laughs) But much more importantly, this included the potential title, What's That Notion on Me Leg? Oh my god. Accent included in the original type, and that was just a huge fucking missed opportunity if there ever was one. So my my big demand, if anybody does remake Jaws, please title it "What's That Notion on My Leg." Um, and also the other fact, uh, way back in the early production of Jaws, the producers originally wanted to train a real great white shark for the movie, and they quickly <laughs> realized that they were dumbasses. But I really want to see the timeline where that happened i really want to see that as a story yeah i want to add that to my my list of requests for the that is a wes anderson film waiting to happen (laughs) what's that notion on me leg the story of uh movie producers trying to train a great white shark to be jaws Yeah, and then uh, the last, the last thing, my last request, I would say, in uh, while we're talking about sharks, 
I want everyone to look up Greenland sharks because those fuckers can yeah. live for over 400 years. They look like they have seen some shit and I adore <laughs> them with my whole heart. Like if you've ever cared about a shark, just look up a Greenland shark. Look up the really old ass one they found a little while ago. Just look into those eyes and imagine that that thing has been around for so long, so long. And all it wants to do is swim and eat some shit and like, Oh, a hero. I'm, I'm I just, sorry, I but every them. time every time I look at a Greenland shark, I keep thinking about Grandpa from The Simpsons. That's yes, all I that's, see. That's I look who at him he and I see, is. It's like Superman and JFK had a fight around the world. The victory mm-hmm. is somewhere. That's in what the that middle. shark looks like, and. God, I love them for it. That is a grandpa shark if I have ever seen it, and everyone deserves to see them. It's the only shark I've so ever please, seen with cataracts, dude. It's got cataracts. <laughs> I know it's those so eyes sad. look so milky. <laughs> I always wonder I always look at it uh, and I'm like, I always wonder if they make walkers for sharks. It's like I do. I look yeah, at those I, I look at Greenland sharks and I really wonder. But you want to know something? I shouldn't be disrespectful because most old people could probably be, you know, you know, I think maybe it's like an old veteran too. Maybe it's like it looks weak, but it could like fin slap you across the room. So Absolutely. I don't know what to think. Although now you, now you mentioned wheelchairs. I am thinking about those videos of people who make like modified wheelchairs for their goldfish who have like bladder, float bladder deficiencies. Yeah, so it's like a little cork with a little, you know, belly band under them. And I'm imagining a Greenland shark on one of those now. And who is it a good mental image? <laughs> I mean, we did Boba Hotep. Maybe we'll have a shark, a shark movie like that. That could work. I hope so. Shark um, rehabilitation. So, um, yeah. So for for anybody who wants to do, you know, for film mixing or anybody wants to, you know, add this to their evenings lineup, um, I'll start with Creature from the Black Lagoon. There's two more Jack Arnold films that come to mind that, you know, could work with it. Uh, in 1953's It Came From Outer Space and 1955's Tarantula. Uh, those are two Jack Arnold films I could see working with it. Um, and if not, then I would throw it with pretty much anything from the Universal Classic Monster series. You know, mm-hmm. Bela Lugosi and Dracula. Um, anything with Lon Chaney Jr. or Boris Karloff is fine. I just feel that um, if you were going to do it as a lineup, those would be the ones I would use. And then... Uh, for Jaws, I I've sat and I've thought about it, but really it's hard to, you know, have anything that follows Jaws. That's why Jaws is always the finisher. <laughs> it's like, it's like trying to find. It's really it's like trying to follow a Led Zeppelin or a Rolling Stones concert. They just can't really do it. Um, I would say that there are films you could put before it. You know, mm-hmm. you could put all the spins that have come before it. Uh, Piranha or uh, Leviathan or uh, you know which is basically like okay you've watched you've kind of sort of watched a movie about horror in the water let's go on to the real thing now um, yeah or you could take it in a different direction and watch Sharknado that's my right. recommendation yeah, exactly a good <laughs> good example that's a great idea um, the other thing that I've paired it up with a lot is Death Proof uh, mm. which we which we watched months ago but that's the only other thing I've ever paired it up with I usually watch Death Proof first and then Jaws second whenever we're showing it to friends. That's a doozy of an evening. <laughs> yeah, it is. 
Yeah, because it's maximum it's maximum carnage with with both films. So anybody who wants more horror and sharks in their life, if you're looking for a shark horror film resource, uh, one colleague of mine, uh, the very talented Susan Snyder, does Shark Exploitation Sunday every Sunday uh, from Madness Heart Press, and Susan basically writes about all the different sharks uh, that all the different shark movies that come out. And, uh, yeah, that's definitely a good resource to check out in case you're, like, looking for something and you're having a hard time finding good B-movies about sharks. Uh, leave it to Susan. Susan will totally hook you up. Uh, she yeah, even does all the reviews incredible. and everything else. Good work, Susan. And we'll definitely, and okay. we'll put the link to Shark Exploitation Sunday in the, in the episode notes as well. Yeah. Now, while I've hopefully got everybody sh- like hopped up on shark love, I do want to point you in a, a good direction at the end of the episode here. I want to draw everyone's attention to Project Aware. Um, their website is projectaware.org. Now, they are a great organization. Um, they've been working for over 25 years on ocean health and a lot of work on shark health specifically, conservation, education. So they are a great organization to donate to if you're looking to give financial contributions or host a fundraiser of your own. But they also have a really great page on their website if you go to the Take Action section of their website that has a ton of educational resources for people of all ages and all proclivities. So they have tons of blog posts um, and all sorts of... um, kind of toolboxes of information for you to look at, whether you are trying to teach your kid about sharks, whether you're a scuba diver trying to get more info, or if you're just a regular Joe who would like to learn some stuff about sharks and how maybe you can help out. Their page has great resources, so go do some more reading, find out more about our our good pals in the sea, and uh, stay safe in the ocean, or, you know, in house arrest, either one. Up next is guest anchor Danielle Delisle with the Horror News. Danielle is a writer, actress, gamer, and podcaster. You can follow her at her podcast, Tell Us What's in the Box, which is a casual podcast about relationships and horror media, on Twitter, at the box underscore podcast, and listen to it on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Hi everyone, I'm Danielle Delisle, and this is the Late Night Horror News. Nightmare Magazine is currently open to submissions until July, and they're looking for original horror and dark fantasy stories of 1,500 to 7,500 words. To learn more, please visit www.nightmare-magazine.com slash guidelines.html. Although Tales to Terrify is currently closed for paid submissions, they are open to flash fiction pieces up to 2,500 words. You can learn more at talestoterrify.com slash submissions. The Dark is an online magazine that's looking for fiction pieces from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Visit thedarkmagazine.com slash submissions dash guidelines for more details. The Nightmares and Phantasms podcast is currently open to submissions of 1,000 to 6,000 words. For more information, visit www.lompublishing.com slash submission dash call. Please note that even though The Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. 
If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on the late night, you can write to MonerLawrence at Hotmail.com. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at Monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.